This morning is our final week in the Old Testament. Each year in September, we start again in the book of Genesis, and we follow the story of God's people through creation, through their calling, through their covenant, through their cycles of faithfulness and failure. We follow the story all the way through God's harsh cure, the hard reset of the people going into exile, and we end where the Old Testament ends, with their return. After the exile, some people returned to the land of their ancestors, but they had been gone a long time, and they didn't all come back all at once. And when they got there, they discovered that you never really go back. That things weren't the same, and that things even weren't as good as they had expected. Maybe that resonates with you this morning. Maybe you're waiting. Maybe you have waited for something. And when you finally get it, you discover it's not all it was cracked up to be. This morning, I want to reflect with you about how to find peace when life doesn't meet your expectations. Our text for this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. The chapter we're going to read is one of my absolute favorite passages in the entire Bible. It might be my absolute favorite. It's a scripture that has inspired me for many years. Every time I read it, I feel like the universe opens up a little bit. And I get a glimpse of something bigger than myself. Let me read it to you. It'll also be on your screens. This is Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of sovereign Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of Yahweh for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of Yahweh. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that Yahweh has blessed. 
I delight greatly in Yahweh, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so sovereign Yahweh will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. That has to be some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible. It is poetry. It is prophecy. And it is promise. Poetry, prophecy, and promise all make more sense when you understand the context, what was happening when they were written. This poetic, prophetic promise from after the exile, once the people have returned. It's been about 60 years since they left. So some of the people who returned had never even seen their homeland in the first place, but they had been raised on the stories of what it was like back in the good old days. Unfortunately, the present never seems to live up to our rosy memories of the past. And in all honesty, usually the past was not that great either. By the time we get to chapters 56 through 66, the very end of Isaiah, the people who have returned are falling into the same bad habits as their ancestors did. See if any of this sounds familiar to you. There's infighting between rival religious and political groups. They have religious and political leaders who are only interested in personal gain. The justice system is corrupt. Community spirit is flagging. The people assume that God is only on their side and that their enemies are God's enemies. And the economy is weak. But the people have all these promises that the prophets gave them during the exile that they would have a glorious homecoming. So they're pretty confused because their situation doesn't feel very glorious. They don't feel great. What's going on? Were the prophets wrong? Has God failed them? That's 56 through 66 of Isaiah. And in the middle of all of this mess, we have Isaiah chapter 60, chapter 61 that we just read, and chapter 62. And these three chapters in the middle of 11 chapters of disappointment and failure, these three chapters are full of poetry and promise. They are full of hope for the future. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. As we read these verses, you may be asking the very good question, who is me? 
The text says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Who is it talking about when it says me? Well, I'll tell you, we don't know. And if you think it's Jesus, I'm going to ask you to hold your horses for just a couple minutes. Because at this point, when the text was written, there was no Jesus yet. But the Jewish people have kept and treasured this text. It meant something to them then. So even if we think it means Jesus, and we will talk about that in a few weeks, it can't only mean Jesus. Because it has meaning for people who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You with me? Okay, so there are other places in the book of Isaiah where we find descriptions of a person who is called the suffering servant. This is a mysterious figure who is willing to sacrifice their own comfort, safety, and power to participate in God's work of justice. But scholars don't know who this suffering servant is. And in general... The Jewish people are much better than Christians are at living with ambiguity and mystery in their faith, so this doesn't really bother them. But we like to have answers to the questions. Maybe this suffering servant is the Jewish people themselves. That's a very popular view. And it makes sense. People who were supposedly, apparently, blessed to be a blessing, but have been persecuted for all of history. Maybe it's the Messiah. That makes a lot of sense. Whether you believe the Messiah has already come or you're still waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, these verses make sense in that context. It's also possible that this was a specific person at the time of the writing who felt a calling to lead the work of justice in God's community, but whose identity has been lost to history. Or here's an idea. Maybe it's you. I honestly believe that one of the reasons the Bible doesn't tell us the identity of this person is so that each of us can read the word me and think me. Would you read this out loud with me at home? We're going to put it up on the screen for you. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. God's prophetic, poetic promises inspire us. They are designed to remind us who we want to be and what is possible in the world if we align ourselves with God. We cannot do these things in our own strength. And we cannot do them if we are religious hypocrites filling our lives with violence and greed and idolatry. It just won't work. But somebody has to do the work of God in the world. Does God make a way where there is no way? Yes, but God uses willing women and men as the vehicles for accomplishing God's justice and God's mercy. 
These prophetic, poetic promises inspire us to participate in God's renewal of creation. We are responsible to live well. What we do matters for the kingdom. Fully trusting Christ. Committing yourself to a lifetime of walking in God's way. Asking Jesus into your heart, going through confirmation, becoming a Christian, however you say it, however you get there. What it means is realizing that the spirit of Yahweh is upon you. Your baptism is an anointing to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and to comfort all who mourn. That's your calling as a Christian. And that is our calling together as a Christian community, as the body of Christ. And that realization... Knowing who you are in God and what you are called to do, that realization brings tremendous peace. Peace in the scriptures is a huge concept. It means wholeness. It means congruence. It means integrity. It means all things in line, all things flourishing, all things as they should be. No matter what you do to make a living, No matter if there is a worldwide pandemic happening, your calling is still to preach good news to the poor. There are still ways to bind up the brokenhearted. It is always the season to liberate those who are bound up. And we will never stop bringing light into dark places. As we come to the communion table, we remember that the prophets are also clear that we can't do these things if there's darkness within us. When we give in to greed and violence and idolatry, when we are religious hypocrites, which we all are sometimes, we lose our peace. We feel fractured knowing that our choices aren't reflecting our true values. And the practice of confession clears this out for us. It is healthy and healing to acknowledge our failures, not to shame us, but so that we can stop carrying them around and beating ourselves up about them. God has already forgiven us, but confession makes us whole again, restoring our peace. And in that spirit, would you join me in confession this morning? because I need it. We will speak together a confession that's been used for many years, and then we'll take a few moments in silent confession. Would you join me? Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and we cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us 
so that we may delight in your will and follow in your ways to the glory of your name. Now I invite you to take a moment silently to reflect and offer your own confession as you see fit. Now, friends, according to the proclamation of Jesus in Scripture and through the power of his righteous life, death, and resurrection, be assured that God hears our prayers and has already forgiven us. Let go of your fear and claim the peace that is yours. Come to the table and experience being in Christ as we eat together. Our virtual gathering this morning is a reminder that we always celebrate communion with people we can't see. Every time we come to the table, we are gathering with our Christian siblings around the world and all our ancestors in the faith. So even if you're by yourself this morning, you're not alone at Christ's table. Because as our ancestors in the faith have insisted for hundreds of years, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. Where people of all ages, races, and sexes, people in every type of body come from the north and the south and the east and the west and are welcomed by Christ, who is the host at all our tables. And so this morning, together, wherever we are, we remember. We remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For my friends, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you lift up your own bread and cup wherever you have them this morning as I pray a prayer of blessing over all of them? God who is love, you are not bound by time or place. You are with all of us making all our spaces into sacred spaces this morning. Open our hearts to your presence and to the fellowship of all the saints. Send your Holy Spirit on all of these breads, on all of these cups, on each of us and on all of us. May this meal nourish our spirits, strengthen our unity, and fuel our resolve for peace and justice. As we eat and drink, we declare that you are the light of the world who has released us from our darkness. Amen. Friends, whatever you have this morning is the bread of life and the cup of blessing for you. Wherever you are, would you eat and drink and be filled with God's peace?